We people from the forest could never stay in the city. We live in the bush, and we have everything we need here. Unfortunately, we are now witnessing the mass destruction of the forest. I may be like one tiny ant struggling to resist, but I do my part by talking about causes like this. While people everywhere are afraid of the end of the world, we indigenous people already know what that means. And we're here to work together to make sure it doesn't happen again. Manaus is an industrial city at the heart of the rainforest in the state of Amazonas a place where untouched nature meets urban life. Emerson Ponches previously studied biology and is a trans artist. In performances captured through photographs, Emerson transforms into Uira Sodoma. Emerson paints and decorates their body with organic materials, becoming a hybrid natural being. The artist designs and creates the costumes using plants from the garden or local surroundings. This is from the Barichi palm. It's a water plant. When I touch it, it reminds me of water, of animals. I try the costume out here on the model. So I can kind of see myself from the outside. Emerson was born in the village of Monjuí dos Campos in the Amazon region of Pará and grew up seeing the diversity of nature, later researching it scientifically. Emerson connects all these experiences through art, academic with spiritual knowledge, environmental activism with questions about gender. Uira is in a constant state of reinvention. Aoira has many faces. Every photo, every face tells a story. And there are countless stories to tell. Here, Aoira is telling stories about the Rio Negro stories about rights and the meaning of mystery, diversity, secrets, and about the human urge to explore and discover everything, which can lead to exploitation and, in the end, destruction. As Uira, Emerson can return to their roots, directing the Western European explorer's gaze to the view of indigenous peoples, as a trans person with both European and indigenous roots, Emerson mediates between different worlds. My work condemns these violations of life, not just the destruction of the environment, but also human social violations. I create a direct parallel between these worlds. Some 8,000 kilometers away, in Africa, in southwestern Cameroon, 
Near the coastal town of Kribi, people are busy building a better future. The rainforest here is part of the Congo Basin, the world's second largest area of tropical rainforest after the Amazon. At the edge of the rainforest, Warka Village takes shape. It's named after a native African tree that's a gathering place for the local community. Here, people from the region are to live in harmony with nature, with the help of traditional materials and technology, old and new. Standing in the heart of Warka Village is not a tree, but a tower, one that can collect and filter up to 25,000 liters of rainwater and condensation. In my country, Cameroon, water is an extremely important and rare commodity. We travel for miles to get clean drinking water. We want to give vulnerable communities like the Bagyeli, as well as all the others who need it, access to drinking water. A Bagyeli family has set up house right next to the construction site. They were displaced from their home in the rainforest and could be among the people who move into Warka village once it's finished. Eight to ten families from various communities could live here together in the future. We're happy the project is coming together. That's why we've settled here. But they also want to better their children's future. As in many other regions of the country, the children can't go to school because they have to help ensure their family's basic needs, like fetching water for daily use. They often walk for many hours and many kilometers through the forest. The long distances are one factor. Another is health and hygiene. The destruction of the forest and the expansion of cities have ruined the Bagyali's home and their access to clean water. We all do our business in the river. The water isn't really drinkable. It's where we use the toilet, where we do our laundry, everything. We drink there too. From the same river? Yes. Warka Village aims to make lasting improvements to the living conditions of the people in this region. Construction began two years ago. Italian architect Arturo Vittori is in charge of the project. He previously worked on designing settlements for space research projects, so he's no stranger to dealing with tricky environmental conditions. Here in Africa, in Cameroon, as an architect, I have more chance to work with you know, natural materials. So being a less industrialized country, we are kind of obliged to go and you know, look for alternative technology which are alternative for us, but for them are the traditional one. So here people that still live in mud house, house made out of bamboo, wood, earth. Traditionally, rainforest huts have roofs made of palm leaves, and that was the inspiration for Warka village. Here, the leaves of raffia palms are woven into panels and layered atop a wooden structure. In such a climate, the roof is everything for, for a building because it protects against the rain, when it rains very, very strong, it protects against the, the sun. For the rest, in this climate, you don't need walls, you don't need partition. 
The homes are designed for families of up to 10 people. There's space for a fire pit in the center of the room. The rising smoke should protect the thatched roof from moisture and keep insects away. This house in the rainforest aims to emulate the traditional lifestyle of the Bagheli, who've lived here for as long as anyone can remember. Though unfortunately, they no longer live in harmony with their natural environment. It's been deforested, and the things they need to survive have been destroyed. That drives them out of the forest and into the city. Every year, an estimated 4 million hectares of rainforest are cleared on the African continent. This destruction has devastating consequences for everyone, but especially for indigenous peoples all over the world. Back in Brazil, in Sao Paulo, the country's largest city with some 12 million residents, it's the cultural and economic center of the country. This is where activist and actress Kai Sara lives today. She was born and raised in another world, in the middle of the Amazon rainforest. Standing here, you can get a sense of how lonely my struggle is, of how small my resistance is in relation to the power this place represents. In the midst of all these towering buildings, there is probably not a single indigenous person. The Avenida Paulista is the city's most famous street, a seat of power, home to the big banks and insurance companies. It's also where Caixara protested against the enforcement of a bill which would allow Brazilian authorities to evict indigenous peoples from protected land. This struggle is really about encountering everyone. I'm meeting people from all over Brazil, and I'm trying to raise awareness. And I'm really fighting against an ignorant nation because some Brazilians really are ignorant. Caixara explores indigenous themes through her work. She acted in this Brazilian-German co-production screened at the Berlin International Film Festival in 2016. The film is about wandering between two worlds, the struggle for survival and the disappearance of a culture. Caixara's family comes from the Amazon in northern Brazil, near the Colombian border. Her mother is Tariana, her father is Tucano. Her grandparents also acted in films, as did her parents. They still sometimes perform together and are very close. She is continuing this work. She continues to tell stories. I taught my children everything. Her father and grandfather too so that they know and can preserve our culture, language, and customs. Caixara uses her body as a political instrument in her performances. 
I'm only now understanding how great my responsibility is. I'm 25 years old. I'm starting to get it. The Amazon is burning. Greed and profiteering are destroying one of the world's most important ecosystems. The planet's green lung is now emitting more carbon dioxide than it can absorb, and thus it's self-contributing to global warming. We're experiencing a global catastrophe, and the ones who can teach the world to live in a more sustainable way are the indigenous peoples. But how? Slash and burn agriculture is destroying lives and cultures, like those of the Bagheli in southwestern Cameroon. The forest has been privatized, deforestation is going on, and the pygmies that have been living here for millennium, now they are chased off of the forest, and now they are marginalized. So this is what is uh, happening every day under our eyes, and it's also our responsibilities, you know, as, as a Western world, for what is happening. Warka village is intended to create new living spaces and train local people, for instance, as gardeners or skilled tradespeople. Residents should be able to live in harmony with nature and be self-sufficient. It's a model project for sustainable architecture, but also a social experiment. We must educate each person. Some come here with prior knowledge, but the majority of the workers and participants in this project have no experience. So our project's not just about building homes, planting flowers or providing a water supply. It's about training young people so they can learn a profession and be independent in the future. It's a win-win situation for all, so the project's leaders hope people can coexist and treat one another with respect. But interactions between different cultures don't always go smoothly, and construction is often delayed due to a lack of materials. Still, the workers are learning and reviving traditional trades. It's definitely something good. But the Warka village project isn't solely for the Bagheli. It's designed for other groups, too. The idea is to create a living space with a good hygiene concept. That's why we're building water towers, to provide drinking water. Anyone who moves here must ensure the place remains clean. A utopia on the outskirts of the rainforest. How promising is the project for the indigenous peoples here? And can everyone learn to get along? We have to learn how to approach one another, how to communicate. We have a different way of life. We must try to understand how the other lives, talks and adapts. The same goes the other way around, too. Barbara cautiously reaches out to the Bagheli, who have little contact to other social groups. There's a great divide between the cultures of the industrialized world and the indigenous peoples of the rainforest. If they want us all to live here together, then they must also accept how we live. In two years, the village should be ready for people to move in. 
Will the conflicts be resolved by then? The children have already made the place their own. And ultimately, that's who the project's visionaries have in mind. The Bagheli's knowledge about living in harmony with nature is being lost. Warka Village is an attempt to preserve this knowledge for the benefit of people everywhere. I came to Africa with the envy to help, you know, with the masculine knowledge how to construct sustainable infrastructure architecture like the Warka Village using local resources and local materials. With, with this experience, actually very precious, that they've been acquiring, you know, working here, I will bring it back to Europe because in our world also there is a new for improvement and a new vision for the future that can be supported by this know-how acquired here. But with its unique natural resources, the rainforest continues to arouse the greed of powerful people. The economic exploitation of the Amazon began centuries ago with the colonization, eviction, and genocide of indigenous peoples. It seems the current Brazilian government has not learned from the mistakes of the past. On the contrary, more rainforest is being destroyed now than it had been in the last 10 years to the benefit of mining projects, agriculture, and the timber trade. Despite pressure from climate experts and laws stipulating the rainforest must be protected, the government is intensifying its campaign to evict indigenous peoples from their rightful land so that even more rainforest can be cleared. For us, it's always been about living in harmony with nature. If you take something away, you have to give something back. The idea was to live well together. And this is no longer the case. People are just taking. The preservation of the rainforest is essential. That's what indigenous peoples, climate scientists, human rights activists, and artists are fighting for, including Swiss director Milo Rao. It's practically one of the last regions that has not been completely sucked into the system and where there is still a struggle going on that runs very deep to the roots of our past and also to our future. Because if the Amazon dies, then so does the planet. Milohau set his interpretation of the Greek tragedy Antigone in the Amazon. It's about the struggle between divine law and human justice, about the tyrant Creon who wants to preserve his power at any cost, and of Antigone who resists him. An allegory for the cultural war in Brazil, between the government and those fighting for their land and their survival. This is a political action. It's not only an international production, it's a real political collaboration. Rehearsals for Antigone in the Amazon bring together indigenous actors like Kai Sara and members of the Landless Workers Movement, Brazil's largest resistance group where millions of supporters fight peacefully, yet radically, for land reform. The Brazilian-European co-production is an act of resistance, using art to envision a better future. We 
We don't have the answers as Europeans. We need other voices. Somebody who warns us about what is going to happen, who gives us reasons, who essentially explains our own perversion and tells us, for example, that we are the cause of the disaster and not the sad victims of climate change. Vocês querem voar menos, matar menos, roubar menos. Mas como vocês podem acreditar que após mais de 500 anos de invasão, após milhares de anos de subjugação do mundo, pode vir um pensamento até vocês de que não trará mais destruição? Esta loucura deve acabar. Kaisara plays the lead role of Antigone. She's a woman who goes fearlessly to her death, spurred on by her faith in the divine and her convictions. I had no idea who Antigone was. I hadn't thought about it before, but then I realized that we indigenous people have a lot in common with this Antigone. <laughs> I like being an actress. I like working in this artistic medium because I know that my body is political and I know how important it is to work in this field. With her body and performances, she creates images that are unforgettable. In terms of the climate, I think that we're so desperate because we're very dependent on other people doing something. In this performance, Asphyxia, Kaisara constructs a metaphor on the suffocating greed of people who cut down the rainforest. A salvação, ao meu ver, I think the solution is swapping in politicians who will actually do something for the environment. That's the best way for us to save ourselves. For the Amazon rainforest to survive, indigenous voices must be heard, including those in the city. Back to the rainforest metropolis of Manaus, Emerson Ponches was five years old when their family moved to the city. They enjoyed the advantages of urban life, but always sought contact with nature and indigenous ancestors. I belong to the indigenous peoples whose history has been erased and who live in or near the city, displaced from their culture and community. It's important that the world and Brazil itself remembers that there are many different contexts of what it means to be an indigenous person in the 21st century. Emerson was lucky to find a teacher who shared in their enthusiasm for nature and motivated Emerson to study biology. Today, Emerson is paying it forward by encouraging young people, imparting knowledge through workshops, and working for cultural institutions and NGOs to save the Amazon rainforest. Four years ago, I finished my biology studies, but I didn't become a biologist 
solely through academia and observing living beings as objects. For Emerson, art is an attempt to portray how everything is interconnected. As Uira Sodoma, Emerson brings together academic knowledge, ancient spirituality, and experience as a non-binary transgender person, the state of being in between, as well as the unity of these existences. Many of the spiritual, political, social, ecological, and climate crises we are experiencing today have arisen because we listened solely to our own needs as humans. Uira wants us to reflect on the wholeness of the world. Merging with the environment, like here in the forest with a centuries-old tree. Art as a kind of ceremony that aims to bring us back to nature and a wake-up call. There are many forms of life in our world, life which deserves to be heard. If we want to preserve life, we must preserve all living things. There is no future without the Amazon. Mongolia has actually raising awareness about climate change and the effects that that has on the nomadic way of life. It gets so cold out there now that the livestock struggle to survive, which means that um, the nomads are out of work, so they move to the capital city, Ulaanbaatar, to find work, but there's now a, like a Gur district or a Yurt district, you know, they're white felt tents surrounding the capital city. And it gets free. It's one of the coldest capital cities in the world. It gets cold. They burn what they can. A lot of it is dirty coal because the clean coal gets sent to China and plastics. So there's now a smog that covers the, um, the capital city. It's oh. a difficult place to live in the winter only. And it, babies are lasting three, four days after birth before they're suffocating. Oh, my God. Just from the burning plastic? and Yeah, just difficult to breathe. And the oh. doctor just says, evacuate the city, get yourself out. So I was just trying my best to raise funds for the Red Cross, raise awareness of actually Mongolia you don't hear. Go to that picture again. Make that it. picture larger, Jamie. Look how crazy that way of life is. Yeah. There's all these tents everywhere. In the background, you see it looks like some mm. wall tents, but maybe some hard structures. It looks like there's a few hard roofs there. Yeah, yeah. There'll be different huts. They'll just but be. Most of them are just tents. Yeah. There's one building back there, a multi-story building. Scroll back. Go that. Go so back. So this to the, is there. See that one? Yeah. That so looks this like is a in the building. capital Ulaanbaatar. So you have a lot, even even in the center. You know, it's pretty pretty nicely developed in there but it's crazy capital. right all dirt roads and what do they do yeah. with sanitation and sewage yeah again um i don't like hearing that noise yeah it says, the, though they lack access to drinking water proper sewage yeah, or internal heating yeah many are reluctant to leave behind the unique millennia old way of living yeah just shit in yeah. a hole in the ground whatever whatever forever yeah oh. so it's imagine not go, wanting that's to leave it, that's that a, Imagine being like so this these is were the way it, to go. Yeah, these were all out in in the wilderness, and the Mongolian wilderness is absolutely stunning. But they've been forced, pretty much, to to move here. So in the encampments, stop that, please. Right. Go back up and make that larger again. What is that uh, background city? What is that? It's that's the outside. Yeah, that's the capital city of Mongolia, Ulaanbaatar. Wow. So, so all, all that stuff on the outside is, is how most of the people like a live. District, yeah. Yeah. Wow. 
so you can mine it drops to like minus what minus 40 fahrenheit fucking a man and so they just need to stay alive so they burn whatever they can they can find to stay warm jesus so there's always you know always environmental at, at my heart first and foremost especially seeing the world you see it in its rarity you know you're out madagascar trekking its wilderness and 80 percent of all plant life and wildlife found in madagascar alone it's found nowhere else in the world really literally walking past stuff on a daily basis thinking you're not found anywhere else only only native to, to madagascar with giant comet moths this big bright yellow to lemurs over a hundred different species so I'd, I'd do my best to try to meet up with as many organizations as I possibly could who were helping to protect and expand national parks, who were helping to educate the locals, supply different means of work, uh, protect the species living within and highlight like the press were interested in the journey. But I would direct and highlight, you know, the, the real unsung heroes, I call them, the people volunteering, doing this day in, day out. And often there's just a lot of, you switch on the TV and it's just all negative, isn't it? But I believe positivity spreads more positivity. So um, highlight these issues, all of the amazing workers doing their utmost to protect the environment. Um, and yeah, that makes you want to do more as well, doesn't it, you know? Yeah. Well, it, it seems like it's got to change your just your frame of reference shifts. Mm. You've seen so many things that most people haven't seen. Just haven't been to that place and knowing that there's massive groups of people that are living like that that are burning plastic in the wintertime to try to stay alive. Yeah. It just shifts how you view things. That's it. For sure. Yeah. And you you know, once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. Right. It's one of those where you just want to try to keep helping where you can. That's How many people are living like that? Oh, great. So there's 4 million people uh, in Mongolia but probably about 3 million are in the capital city. Uh, probably half of that are Gur districts, nomads. Wow. Almost half, maybe. So more than a million people in tents. Potentially, it's getting that way anyway, yeah. Fuck. And the air quality just, again, so poor. Can you imagine that? Just giving birth to the doctors. Get, get out of the city. Wow. Otherwise, you, there's a high chance that you're, you're going to lose your child. And, and the people that do stay... The older people, that must be taking years off their life. Yeah, most likely. And then in the summer, so I didn't experience it in the winter, but in the summer, you still got the Gur district, but it's warm. So you can see the sky. This June was the hottest in American history. The 116-degree heat melted power cables in Portland, Oregon, and smashed previous temperature records. Seattle recorded an all-time high of 108 degrees, as did British Columbia, at a whopping 121 degrees. So it should come as no surprise that as the world warms, more and more people are installing air conditioning. Global energy demand for cooling has more than tripled since 1990. And without stricter efficiency standards, it could more than double between now and 2040. Globally, it's expected that 4 billion people will buy their first air conditioner by 2050. But air conditioning itself is a major contributor to global warming. It uses a massive amount of electricity and can leak potent greenhouse gases into the atmosphere you actually will get into this pretty strong feedback effect where you know it's hotter, people want more air conditioning, and it just gets you know worse and worse. Altogether, building operations, that is heating, cooling, and lighting, account for 28% of the world's total greenhouse gas emissions. That's more than the entire transportation sector. We realized that we were making progress on the transportation side, we were making progress on the generation side, but the elephant in the room was the fact that Buildings used so much energy and emitted so much carbon, and there was no real solution for it. But Skycool, Gradient, and a number of other companies are working on it, figuring out how to apply new technologies to the traditionally inflexible heating and cooling industry, 
finance the upfront costs, communicate the value to property owners, and make sure that it's all done equitably. The reason why people aren't adopting these technologies is because one, it's too much of a hassle, and two, it's too expensive. And so we set out to solve those two problems. We're trying to upgrade and modernize and digitize. How do you apply computer science to the problem of analyzing buildings? And if you can do that, can you get Wall Street and pension funds and infrastructure funds and the federal government to invest the trillions of dollars that we need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions? The energy that it takes to heat and cool buildings and where that energy comes from doesn't get a ton of attention, but this is how it works. AC runs on electricity, a lot of it. A small window AC unit can consume more power than four refrigerators, and central AC in a single home consumes more power than 15. While the US electric grid is getting greener as more renewables come online, most of the country's electricity is still generated by fossil fuels, with natural gas being the most common. And in places like China and India, where the urban middle class is soaring and demand for AC units is too, their electric grids rely heavily on coal, the dirtiest fossil fuel of all. And so right now, between 5 and 10% of people in India have air conditioners. And by 2050, the expectation is that 70 to 80% of the population will. And so that's literally going to be almost a billion people that are going to buy air conditioners. Right now, air conditioning accounts for about 8.5% of global electricity consumption. And researchers have predicted that by mid-century, the global energy demand for cooling will overtake the global demand for heating. But currently, heating still reigns supreme in terms of energy use, and that's a big problem too. Central heating for commercial buildings and homes mainly relies on natural gas, which means a greener electric grid won't solve the problem here. Basically, we need to find a fundamentally different way to heat buildings, and while better insulation and ventilation should be implemented, the crux of the issue is how to electrify space and water heating. A lot of people are very familiar with the need to electrify cars and vehicles, but there's a much smaller focus on buildings. And there's been very slow adoption of existing technologies at the current rate and pace that we're at will actually take 500 years to retrofit every home in America. And that pace is way too slow. Many companies in this space are particularly excited about heat pumps an all-electric device that, despite its name, can both heat and cool homes much more efficiently than traditional systems, and have seen technical improvements in recent years that allow them to work better in cold climates. Essentially, they work just like an air conditioner that can run in reverse. Basically, what a heat pump does is it lets the internal uh, refrigerant cycle go in both directions. And so it's the addition of a valve that can send the hot refrigerant to the indoor side instead of the outdoor side. It pulls heat from the cold outdoor air and it pushes it into your room. When it works as an AC, it pulls heat out of your room and then pushes it to the outdoors. You can plug it into your windows or walls or there's giant ones that you plug into your roof and your ventilation system of your building. But the key is they run on 100% electricity. Baird is CEO of Block Power, a Brooklyn-based climate startup working to retrofit buildings in low-income neighborhoods. The company installs heat pumps for no money down and property owners pay block power back over a 10 to 15 year period. These monthly payments are ideally offset by the energy efficiency savings that owners see on their energy bills. Heat pumps are like two to four times typically more efficient than the traditional technologies. That's a big win for the environment, especially when it comes to heating, since tapping into the US's partially green electric grid is far better than the alternative. 
Even today, if you replace your fossil fuel heating system with an electric heat pump, given the carbon intensity of the electricity grid, you can reduce emissions by about 70%. As we move to a cleaner electricity grid, that number will only get better. Romanin's company, San Francisco-based Gradient, is building heat pumps that the customer can install themselves in their window, thereby eliminating high install costs, which Romanin says account for about two-thirds of a heat pump's total price. Depending on the size, layout, and location of a building, the total cost of a ductless heat pump can vary widely. But according to Energy Sage, it averages between $3,500 and $5,000 per unit, compared to an average of about $550 for a window AC unit. Ductless heat pumps, like window ACs, control the temperature for a particular room instead of the whole building. The install cost of heat pumps is huge. And so what our system does is it packages a lot of the high efficiency components that exist today in other parts of the sector in a really simple to install and really pleasant to use device. Romanin says that Gradient's system is about 30% more efficient than traditional window ACs. Plus, the refrigerants that it uses are 70% less carbon intensive than standard hydrofluorocarbon refrigerants, which are powerful greenhouse gases that often leak into the atmosphere at some point during the life cycle of an air conditioner. Gradient's initial product will cover about half of a customer's heating load, and Romanin says that the next product will be capable of fully replacing fossil fuel heating systems. So by eliminating gas and fossil fuel in the homes and electrifying those end uses and then coupling that with things like on-site solar coupled with storage can you know, further help so that we don't have to exercise some of those emergency dirtier sources. But heat pumps aren't the only exciting tech in this space. Another Silicon Valley company, Skycool, is designing panels that take advantage of a natural phenomenon known as radiative cooling in which certain materials are able to cast heat into space in the form of infrared light and can therefore stay cooler than the surrounding air. So the system itself only uses electricity to run a pump. That pump is used to circulate water through our panels. Relative to the other systems, other electricity consuming components in air conditioners or refrigeration systems, the pumps are using a much smaller amount of electricity. Uh, the cooling effect itself is, is passive, so it really just needs to be outside and exposed to the sky. Skycool's panels are covered in an advanced plastic film, which radiates heat into space and reflects nearly all the sunlight hitting it. When a liquid like water or another refrigerant is circulated through the panels, it sheds heat and naturally cools. That's useful because air conditioning and refrigeration systems expend a lot of energy cooling refrigerants. Skycool's ability to passively cool liquids means that it could integrate with these traditional systems and improve their efficiency. Skycool currently has six live deployments, and their next will be at a data center in Sacramento. Really, the businesses that we're going after have cooling loads that are dominant. So these are cold storage facilities, there's supermarkets, uh, there are convenience stores, and you know, data centers and data closets. So these are the buildings that have the highest energy use of all the buildings that are out there, essentially. We have the tech and the know-how to put buildings on a path to full decarbonization. What's standing in the way is mostly a matter of upfront costs and a lack of awareness from players across the supply chain about the benefits and availability of all electric, energy-efficient appliances. It's in getting the pricing down through that volume of production and having the market to absorb that volume. But in the meantime, having tax credits and incentives to buy down and create that market along with creating the awareness and education from the homeowners or the end users to the installers or the plumbers. New York-based startup Sealed is trying to address the upfront costs as well as consumer education. 
Like Block Power, the company provides no money down heat pump installations, as well as weatherization measures like improving insulation and air sealing, and smart home tech like LED bulbs. The value of this type of home retrofit averages $15,000 to $20,000, and Sealed gets paid back directly through the homeowner's energy savings. So what we're doing is we're radically aligning our interest with homeowners and also the planet. Because if we don't recommend the right improvements or the right contractors, we don't end up making any money. Block Power doesn't tie its profits directly to energy savings the way that Sealed does. Instead, building owners agree to a set monthly payment schedule. But the conviction that green retrofits will pay for themselves over time is the driving concept behind Block Power's financing model too. And a number of prominent VCs, including the Goldman Sachs Urban Investment Group and Andreessen Horowitz, have bought in. The type of projects that Block Power is interested in, retrofitting places like apartment buildings, churches, and community centers, can cost hundreds of thousands or even a million dollars but the company reduces the costs associated with building inspections through its software, which analyzes spaces to predict what changes will be most impactful. We've built a software system that has a digital model for millions and millions of buildings across the country. So before someone sets foot in your building, we've scraped all of the government records, all of the financial records, all of the engineering records, all of the blueprints and aggregated them into a database that allows us to make predictions about the kind of green energy equipment that make the most sense for your building. When it comes to marketing, Block Power touts the environmental impact of green tech, but also emphasizes how it will make a building more profitable. And Saul says that the secret to getting homeowners to decarbonize is focusing on how retrofits will increase comfort. I think the historical messages of save money on your energy bills or save the planet have actually undersold the value of the improvements themselves, which is improving people's quality of life at home. Romanin agrees that this is the approach to take. When people shop for an AC today, we almost never see the efficiency or environmental impact come into their decision. And so what we've seen is what people do want to buy now is a better experience, and that for most window AC customers means getting your window back and having a quiet system. In the end, whatever gets property owners to go green doesn't really matter. It's just that they do it one way or the other. The U.S. definitely can't reach its ambitious goal of carbon neutrality by 2050 unless we electrify buildings, make them a whole lot more energy efficient, and fully green the electric grid, as President Biden hopes to do by 2035. So we need to have a, a moonshot goal, because unless you set up an audacious goal, solutions don't come out. So I'm very optimistic that we can get to uh, decarbonize our new buildings, perhaps by 2030, 2035. But getting the existing building stock completely decarbonizes the one that's going to take a, a little bit longer. But I feel by 2040, 2050, we have to be there. In May, the White House announced the Initiative for Better Energy, Emissions and Equity. Known as the E3 initiative, it invests $10 million in accelerating the research and adoption of heat pump technologies, while also focusing on developing greener refrigerants and smarter tools to diagnose problems and inefficiencies with heating and cooling systems. And while Biden's original infrastructure bill called for bold investment in climate adaptation and clean tech, even if Congress doesn't pass these initiatives, Baird says there's still plenty of ways that policymakers and the private sector can work together to decarbonize buildings. I think that President Biden can lead a charge to aggregate data and get the buildings into an open source database so that any contractor or any firm that wants to come in and help fix their building can access the data easily and give them a set of solutions. We can lead the charge of computer scientists and developers who 
are alarmed or concerned about climate change, to interrogate that data, to clean it, to start to analyze how to deploy clean energy. Certainly incentives like tax credits and subsidies for property owners, manufacturers, and installers who opt to go green would help too. The same can be said for federal procurement programs in which the government commits to buying a set amount of a particular product, be it an electric car or an electric heat pump, thereby de-risking the production of clean tech, driving manufacturing scale-up, and lowering costs. But because the politics of the energy transition are always messy, many say they just don't want adoption of their tech to be dependent upon government action. One of our goals is to build a system that's attractive to customers because of the experience, even without incentives, because we don't have time to wait. We have to start now. But not to be all doom and gloom about it, the buildings are an opportunity for us that should be harnessable with technologies that are ready and at hand. There's a cow right there, but you can't see it. <laughs> This is just insane. This is literally the worst I think I've ever seen it. And the visibility is just horrendous. Extreme cold is by far the leading cause of weather-related deaths in the U.S. each year. According to the CDC, around 1,300 people die each year from cold exposure. And that doesn't even take into account the over 1,800 traffic fatalities from snow and ice on the roadways. So even though snow is fun, winter weather is worth preparing for. For public health officials and transportation managers, a silver lining of a warming climate seemed to be milder winters and hopefully fewer deaths. But then something happened that surprised even the most astute scientists. You know, back in the 90s, the models that we used to try to you know, anticipate climate change showed a decrease in snowfall. And, you know, there was a very famous even New York Times article, you know, the end of snow, how places like New York City <laughs> won't snow anymore. And in much of the world, that's exactly what happened. Snowpack in the West has been declining for decades, and nearly every glacier on Earth is receding. But then, in the winter of 2011, a very confusing trend began to take shape. The New Year started out with a historic storm, and in the northeastern U.S., the blizzards kept coming year after year. The most severe snowstorms are given a rating category from one through five. And looking at the frequency of these storms can give us an idea of climate trends. If you look at by decade since 1958, there were eight or less per decade. Over the most recent decade, there've been 27 of these disruptive snowstorms. So more than a tripling of any other previous decade. It will become the snowiest decade for the region. And within that decade, 2015 exceeded all predictions. It was Stephanie Pollack's first year as secretary of the Massachusetts Department of Transportation. We had 110 inches in a single season, which was the most we've ever had in Massachusetts. And it was also cold and it didn't warm up in between. And so it didn't melt and the piles just got higher and higher. 110 inches is more than double the previous average annual snowfall of 48 inches. And it's not just the Northeast. Winter storms are getting more severe in the Great Lakes, Northern Europe, and Central and East Asia. It was really hard to clear the sidewalks. And then the other big issue was our transit system to the point where we had to shut the system down. And so we had the people who we now call essential workers, but we didn't even have that word in 2015. You know, we were, we were trying to run buses for them, but we couldn't run the subways. And it took weeks to get back to the point where we could run the entire transit system. I think of the winter of 2015 as one indication that the climate is changing and we have to be prepared to live in a different world. If you're confused about this, that makes sense. It's why most people use terms like climate change or even global weirding rather than global warming. First, let's talk about what conditions you need to get a big snowstorm on the East Coast, like a nor'easter or a bomb cyclone. 
to get these big snowstorms here in the northeastern U.S., you really need a confluence of events. You need a northerly flow to bring in the cold air. You need a southerly flow to bring in the moisture. You need strong high pressure blocking to the north to kind of lock it in along the coast. To put it in the simplest way possible, air around an area of low pressure spins counterclockwise and air around an area of high pressure spins clockwise. When these two meet along with enough cold air and moisture, they work together like gears to batter the east coast. But historically, these systems aren't extremely cold, just a few degrees below freezing. So you'd think that the two degree Fahrenheit rise in global temperatures would make more of these storms simply turn into rain, but that's not what we're seeing. Instead, there's been more snow and more outbreaks of cold air dipping down into the U.S. Dr. Cohen told us that a leading theory to explain the increase of cold air from the Arctic has to do with Arctic amplification. You might remember from our hurricane episode that the Arctic is warming much faster than the global average, twice as fast, actually. That's because dark water and land surfaces absorb more of the sun's energy than white reflective ice. So as ice melts, more of these dark surfaces are exposed, which amplifies warming. And a quickly warming Arctic destabilizes the jet stream. The jet stream is a fast-moving, high-altitude wind current that forms where cold and warm air meet. The greater the temperature difference between these air masses, the stronger the jet stream becomes. But when that difference decreases, the jet stream can slow dramatically and dip further south. There's also a giant mass of swirling cold air high over the Arctic called the polar vortex. When everything's stable, we don't really notice it. But destabilize the jet stream and the polar vortex becomes wobbly like a top as its rotation slows. Instead of just sitting there spinning quietly on the top of the globe over the northern pole, now it starts to meander, starts to wander around. When you have these disruptions of the polar vortex, there's like a, it's a dam breaking and the cold air just rushes out into low, you know, to the lower latitudes and mid-latitudes. You get more amplified flow and more opportunities for snowstorms. None of this is new, but it's happening more frequently. And a growing number of scientists like Judah believe our warming climate is driving the process that provides Boston with enough cold air and moisture to set snowfall records. Boston is relatively well prepared to deal with harsh winters, and there are very few cold exposure deaths each year. But these polar vortex events can push cold and even snow into cities that aren't accustomed to it, which is actually more dangerous. And in January of 2014, the polar vortex was a major catalyst in the winter weather event that brought just 2.6 inches of snow to Atlanta, crippling one of the nation's largest cities for days. Children were stuck at school, interstates were clogged, Thousands were stuck in their cars for hours. One mother even gave birth on the side of the highway. This was a true disaster, all because of the lack of timely preparation. But who could blame them, right? The South just isn't accustomed to dealing with winter weather, so it doesn't take much for it to become disruptive. To get some tips on how to stay safe in big snow events, we talked to Peter Murphy from the Oregon Department of Transportation. You can go from dry bare pavement to black ice in a matter of feet here. And if you're not prepared for that, you really can end up in a, in a sideways situation, and in some cases it can be fatal. And so consciousness of the direction the vehicle's going in, the conditions that we're driving in, is critical whether you're in New York City, whether you're in Atlanta, whether you're in San Diego or in Portland, Oregon. Be ready with the right equipment, the right gear. Just make sure your car is equipped with the right kind of 
tires. We, we like to know that you've done what you can to get a full tank of gas before you've headed out on the road. Make sure you have that extra stopping distance between yourself and the other car in front of you. If you're traveling during winter weather, make sure to have food and water in your car. It's also smart to prepare a kit that includes things like an ice scraper, a shovel, gloves, warm clothing, a blanket or sleeping bag, a flashlight, chains for your tires, and even a spare cell phone battery. But by and large, you know, we're a society that has learned how to stay in place. You know, COVID has taught us many things, that's one of them. So it, it is always in our power to not go someplace. But extreme weather is more than just a traffic problem. So I'm calling Dr. Stuart Harris to chat with him about what he sees as an emergency physician at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. Hi, Dr. Harris. What are the most common things you see as an emergency doctor when winter weather gets extreme? So you can think about cold injury in a number of different ways. Uh, one is if your whole body gets cold, what we call hypothermia. As you get a little bit colder, um, our brains just don't work very well and people can do crazy things like we call it paradoxical undressing. They can start, you know, taking off layers that they desperately need. People become sluggish and, and then just aren't able to move. Warning signs of hypothermia include shivering, exhaustion, confusion, fumbling hands, memory loss, slurred speech, and drowsiness. Hypothermia is a medical emergency, so take action quickly to get warm and get medical help. Other types of injury are sometimes very superficial, what we call frost nip or even frostbite, where tissues actually start to freeze. Signs of frostbite include white or grayish yellow skin, skin that feels firm or waxy, and numbness. The best way to warm up frostbitten skin is with warm water or with body heat if that's not available. We see a lot of falls, people on black ice going down, breaking an ankle, breaking a leg, breaking a wrist. As our climate continues to shift, you know, I'm, I'm in Atlanta, so we're seeing a lot more, um, you know, these extreme cold events dip further down to the south. Yeah. What can people do to best prepare themselves for extreme cold weather? So you're exactly right. As the climate changes, you know, what you thought was normal in Atlanta or Texas or, or Virginia is not going to be. It's critical that we're uh, prepared, the appropriate clothing, that you're being thoughtful about how you travel, that you're adequately hydrated and have access to food. Uh, these are things that we, we need to be mindful of. A deep freeze is hitting large parts of America from North Dakota to Texas, forcing energy suppliers to institute rolling blackouts. That's in an attempt to prevent the collapse of power grid networks. The Arctic blast is threatening to crimp crude oil supplies and unleash a rush for everything from propane to heating oil. Bloomberg News' Lynn Doan leads energy coverage in the Americas, and she joins me now. Lynn, thank you so much for joining us. And help us understand to what extent are these blackouts impacting the oil and gas production and how have energy markets reacted? Hi, uh, thank you for having me. They are impacting oil and gas production a lot. Um, I checked a few numbers for you. The U.S. natural gas production total is down more than 20%. That's more than 10 billion cubic feet across the nation right now. We reported earlier that U.S. oil production cuts now total more than 2 million barrels. Just for context, we only produce about 11 million barrels a day across the entire U.S. So that is a big chunk of supply that is already off the table. 
And it doesn't stop at oil and gas. Power plants have been tripping offline since last week. Uh, just yesterday, Texas's grid operator had estimated that 34,000 megawatts of power capacity has now been wiped out by this cold blast. A blast. And for reference, that's like taking 20 nuclear power plants offline all at once. Um, in terms of price impact, I mean, it has been significant. We have seen electricity prices in Texas hit $9,000 a megawatt hour, which is the maximum allowable price in that region four days in a row. Uh, we just reported earlier today that natural gas was traded twice at $999 per million British thermal hmm. units. That is astonishing. It's unheard of. Um, and of course, uh, you know, oil prices have rallied on the news as well. They're at the highest level than they've ever uh, than they've been in, in over a year now. We've That's never right. seen anything quite like this. Mm -hmm. That, that is absolutely right. I mean, such an impact, but there's even a potential larger impact with these kinds of cold fronts. Now, tell us why uh, others outside of these more immediately affected areas, um, tell us what the impact on them may be. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody should care about this. Um, I'll give you some of the obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. Texas is the heart of America's energy industry. Right. Um, it accounts for almost half of the fuel made in the U.S. and supplied. So everybody can expect to see gasoline and diesel prices take um, rise because our gasoline and diesel stocks are going to take a hit around the world, uh, around the country. Mm -hmm. um, we just had a story out today about the potential return of $3 a gallon gasoline, which we haven't seen in a long time because of the pandemic cutting fuel demand, um, but might end up returning because of this event. Um, also, energy infrastructure is in some ways very connected in the United States. So if the central U.S. is taking all of the natural gas and burning it for heating fuel or for power plant um, fuel, it means that people like in, me in California have less to use. Hmm. So right now we are paying more for it. We're already seeing natural gas prices tick up in places like Los Angeles because supplies are going elsewhere and being diverted. Mm -hmm. I mean, even here in Oakland, we're getting messages from our utility asking us to conserve natural gas use to help people out in the Southwest. Already ahead um, of time. Speaking, That's interesting. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for, yeah. oh, it's, but it's already ahead absolutely. of time. That's what, um, so that's what energy companies are doing outside of the main areas ahead of time. They're having people preemptively try to conserve energy. I mean, it's not necessarily ahead of time. We're in the middle of this crisis oh, and yeah. the utilities in California, I think I saw somebody um, share a notice from a utility out in, in, in the eastern U.S. as well, who are all pleading, uh, pleading with their customers to, mm -hmm. to scale back their energy use so that more of it can flow into places like Texas and the rest of the Southwest. Okay. And so I want to switch gears very quickly. And in the last minute or so, I want to ask you about just the impact of such extreme weather events on the power grid. Um, we haven't seen such extreme weather in many areas until recent years. Many attribute this to climate change. So what could be a potential longer term impact in the last oh, minute? We have I, would, I would absolutely mm -hmm. say that there is a connection to okay. climate change here. I don't want to nerd out too much and bore everybody, <laughs> but we had a great explainer out today on 
how um, basically the Earth's poles are warming faster than anywhere in the planet. Mm -hmm. And while we don't understand the consequences of that fully, um, what has become very clear is that there is a connection between those poles warming and the extreme weather events that we have seen, the winter in Texas, the extreme heat in California, Mm -hmm. the terrible chill that like Japan and India and parts of Europe have seen. Um, I mean, there are a lot of weather patterns that are being upended by the fact that there are huge contrast mm-hmm. in weather in, in temperatures and that is really all tied to global warming so if you're asking you know what's in store we're in store for increasingly extreme weather and events like this and it's mm-hmm. raising the question of how we prepare for them well it's now time for it by the numbers where we give you the numbers that tell the story this morning's number is 500 dollars. natural gas for physical delivery here in the u.s was trading for as much as $500 per million British thermal units on Monday as demand for the heating and power plant fuel soared amid a deep freeze. Now, the fuel normally trades for less than $3 per million British thermal units, or MMBTU. Spot gas has been trading for hundreds of dollars across the central U.S. since Thursday, with a surge in heating demand triggering widespread blackouts and sending electricity prices soaring. Bloomberg's Akshat Rathi uh, is joining us now. Akshat, thanks so much for your time. Um, I'm wondering what the climate change and and green connection is here. As we were talking with Brian just now, what we ended up seeing, you know, in in different parts of the world can actually have an effect on local weather in Texas. What's the climate change connection here? Yeah, I think as Brian was saying, uh, I think people underestimate how much... uh, the weather, which is a phenomenon that happens on a daily basis, is connected to the climate, which is a longer-term trend uh, that's playing out across the planet. And uh, what Brian was explaining was essentially that on the poles, uh, you have more warming happening just because of the way the planet rotates and and, uh, heat gets trapped uh, than uh, heating around uh, uh, the, the equator. And so the gradient of uh, temperature difference, which used to be large, Mm. has changed. uh, And that is keeping, essentially, uh, every so often, uh, the fridge opens up, so to speak. The polar vortex that keeps the cold temperature up in the poles uh, opens up and gives you these deep freezes that uh, North America and a few weeks ago Europe was experiencing. So the retirement of fossil fuel plants, Akshat, has caused disruptions before as the world chases its clean energy goals. Jobs are also at stake. Um, I'm wondering what the connection is here to the retirement of fossil fuel power providers and and what's happening in in Texas, because it does seem like uh, that critics are are blasting Texas's increased reliance on wind power right now. So that's a common criticism that comes up every time there is a concern that uh, energy demand has gone up or down and is not being able to met, be, met, uh, be met as, as required. We should know that, yes, wind turbines have frozen. You know, they are not uh, built f- uh, in Texas for that weather. Of course, we have wind turbines up in Canada, uh, up here in Norway and Sweden. Uh, that run perfectly well, but they're just designed to be working at that temperature. So it's no surprise that uh, some wind turbines in in Texas have stopped, but it's also only a small proportion of the problem. So, uh, you know, the numbers show approximately about a fifth of electricity was expected to come from uh, wind. um, And it, you know, some of that has fallen through. Okay. A large proportion has been from fossil fuel power plants, uh, which have 
Some of them have turned off unexplained, uh, unexplained reasons, and others have turned off because gas isn't able to get to uh, the power plants uh, that you know because of frozen pipes uh, in that those places. Yeah, I mean, an absolute host of issues. What's the solution here, though? If, if renewables aren't necessarily to blame, um, an increased reliance on, on renewables, and things aren't quite working out from a fossil fuel, fuel perspective either, what is the solution here so this doesn't happen again? I mean, millions of people without power and heat. So right now we are worried about power and heat. Uh, you know, in, in terms where uh, climate change gets worse, we'll be worried about air conditioning as well. And so the eventual outcome that we need is more reliable energy, but also fewer emissions. That means renewables will have to play a, a bigger and bigger role. The solution that you can apply now and something that Europe has done quite well and the US can really replicate is to build these uh, long interconnectors, they're called. They're essentially long transmission lines connecting countries. So here in the UK, we are connected to Norway. Uh, you know, uh, Spain is connected to France. Uh, Denmark is connected to Sweden. And what that allows you to do is being able to move renewable electricity from where it's being generated to where it's required. The US doesn't have those kinds of interconnectors, um, especially not at the scale where the middle of the country is known for its renewable resources and the coasts are known for you know, consuming a lot of that electricity. And those connectors really need to be built. Is that something that is politically tenable in, in the United States? Is it something that is, is, is um, from an engineering perspective, is, is tenable, is realistic? So 100% tenable from an engineering perspective. Uh, China, for example, has a 2,000 mile mm. uh, high voltage DC line, which uh, connects their uh, Western region with their Eastern region where most of the consumption happens. Um, from a political perspective, it's complicated, but not undoable. So in the past, um, there have been projects that have been put forth by American companies to build these transmission lines, but because utilities did not want change too quickly or weren't sure that renewables will be cheap enough, they uh, stopped these projects from happening. And so now that there is a goal under Joe Biden to um, reach a carbon-free grid by 2035, there is 100% um, uh, the case to be made that these transmission lines uh, are needed. Oops, this wasn't supposed to happen. A ship sent to the Antarctic to look for signs of global warming got stuck in frozen ice from fearsome cold. Then the rescue ship got stuck in the ice too. It's kind of like the climate change movement itself, stuck in denial over the fact that the climate is not getting warmer and seems to be getting much colder. The climate is changing, but it's not changing the way the climate change crowd told us it would change. Nature has made a mockery of global warming. So who are the real climate deniers? The ice is not only growing in the South Pole, but in the North Pole. And the coldest Arctic temperatures in decades have descended upon North America. But this inconvenient truth didn't stop Greenpeace from trying to scare children last month with a video of a sweaty, beleaguered Santa Claus threatening to call off Christmas because the North Pole is melting. Dear children, regrettably, I bring bad tidings. Melting ice here, the North Pole, has made our operations intolerable and impossible. And there may be no alternative but to 
cancel Christmas. Cheer up, Santa. Arctic ice is growing, but that may not be the good news that it seems to be, because there are signs the Earth could be entering a very unpleasant cooling period. Sunspot activity remains very low. The sun has been very unusual for almost for, for 15 years now. Senior scientist Jens Pedersen at Denmark's Technical University says the sun recently reached solar maximum, and there should be a lot of sunspot activity, but there isn't. There would normally have been maybe twice or three times as many sunspots uh, as, as we see, uh, see, have seen this year. We have to go back more than 100 years to find a similar solar maximum, which, which has been so weak as, as the one we are in right now. The last time the sun was this quiet, from the 1600s to the 1800s, North America and Europe suffered through a weather event known as Little Ice Age when the Thames River in London regularly froze solid and colonial America saw terrible winters. Crops failed and people starved. Paterson says climate scientists know the Earth stopped warming 15 years ago. But the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, of which Paterson is a member, suppressed a recent finding by its own scientists that the UN's climate model has been proven wrong. And then they changed also part of what the scientists have written uh, and, and in particular one of the issues has been why global warming has stopped during the last 15 years and, and the scientists were very frank about that that this is a problem that climate models do not match with the climate we observe politicians removed that important piece of good news from the final draft it's as if the eminent danger from climate change can't be wrong because it's now too important it's become a political movement, a cash cow for climate scientists and environmental groups, and some say a way for world leaders to control economics and people. This is absolutely a political agenda. Dan Gaynor of the Media Research Center. When you look at what the government will be able to do with climate change, it gives them entree into literally every aspect of our lives. Yeah, I call it climatism. Steve Gorham is the author of The Mad, Mad, Mad World of Climatism. It has become a, um, a path for global change across the world uh, for uh, adopting green economies and electric cars and uh, putting wind turbines everywhere and changing light bulbs. And it doesn't matter how badly the climate change prophets of doom get it wrong. Al Gore said all the ice in the Arctic would be melted by now. It's growing. Others predicted a shrinking food supply and flooded coastlines. Hurricane Sandy and Typhoon Haiyan are said to be because of climate change. But that ignores the fact that the worst tropical cyclones in modern times occurred in the 1960s. The climate change agenda is going forward anyway. The world is already spending at least $250 billion a year on it. Environmentalists want more. Activists are demanding what they call climate justice from developed nations. What they really want to do is dump trillions into it. They want to get somewhere between 1% and 3% of global GDP. I mean, the amount's staggering amount of money. Climate change skeptics have been censored and compared to Holocaust deniers and even child molesters. But forgotten in the effort to save the world from warming is the effect on the world's poor. Gorham says more than a billion people do not have access to electricity, and almost as many struggle with unreliable power. Cheap electricity from coal would be a savior for the world's poor, but the world's wealthy nations don't want them to have it. 
all in the name of saving the planet from a crisis that mounting evidence suggests is non-existent. A major glacier in Greenland that was one of the fastest shrinking ice and snow masses on Earth is growing again. However, NASA says the growth is just temporary. Yixing Day reports. This is the Jakobshavn glacier seen in 2015, a major mass of ice in Greenland, considered one of the fastest shrinking ice and snow masses on Earth. Since 2012, it's been retreating about three kilometers and thinning nearly four meters annually. However, a new report by NASA shows the glacier has started growing again. Between 2016 and 2017, uh, from two uh, separate NASA uh, airborne missions, we found uh, that near the front the glacier has thickened by uh, up to 30 meters. That's almost 100 feet in one year. Uh, and between 2017 and 2018, the same thing again. Uh, the difference in, in the latter year is that this thickening has extended uh, far upstream compared to uh, the 2016-2017 period. So uh, this effect is, is continuing. Scientists say a natural cyclic cooling of North Atlantic waters is likely the cause. They see the latest regrowth in ice coincides with a flip of the North Atlantic Oscillation, a natural and temporary cooling and warming of parts of the ocean. While the growth may be welcome news, experts believe the change is temporary and may even be bad news in the long run. On the long run, it's actually bad news because uh, we demonstrate, this study demonstrates how sensitive this glacier and probably others in Greenland, how sensitive it is to ocean variability, uh, and specifically, the, the, in particular, the temperature of the ocean. In Greenland as a whole, there's enough ice in the ice sheet to raise global sea levels by seven meters. Scientists say they plan to continue observing the latest trends at the Yakushavin Glacier. Over Earth's long history, there have been dramatic changes to our climate. The ice ages have come and gone. And what's surprising is that there's a strong pattern that explains why ice ages happen when they do. This is called the Milankovitch cycle. Named after Milutin Milankovitch, his theory explains how the Earth's climate changes over hundreds of thousands of years. His theory is based on two key ideas. First, the Earth's climate is strongly affected by how much sunlight the northern latitudes receive during the summer. Second, this amount of sunlight varies based on changes in the Earth's orbit and rotation. Why are the northern latitudes so important? It's because of ice. When sunlight hits the ground, most of the energy is absorbed as heat. But if the ground is covered in ice, most of the light reflects away because ice is white. This creates a positive feedback loop. Ice forms when it's cold, but ice also reflects light, making it colder, which forms more ice. So ice is really important for climate. The northern and southern hemispheres both contain lots of ice, but there's more ice in the north because there's more land. Land has a lower heat capacity than water, which means that water doesn't change temperature as easily as land does, 
This is why coastal regions are generally more mild, and why ice forms more easily on land. Just look at the difference between the northern and southern hemispheres. In the south, there are ice caps that grow during its winter, but not nearly as much as they do in the north. During the winter, the land above the Arctic Circle is covered in darkness, experiencing twilight 24 hours a day. It's very cold, and lots of ice forms during the winter. And this is true no matter what's going on with Earth's orbit. The key variable here is how much ice melts during the summer. This depends on how much sunlight there is during the summer. Now you might think that this doesn't change, but it does. Milankiewicz showed that over hundreds of thousands of years, the amount of summer sunlight can shift plus or minus 15%. This can bring ice ages. This can end ice ages. How can the amount of summer sunlight be changing? Well, first, the distance from the Earth to the sun is changing. And second, the Earth's tilt is changing. The Earth's axis is currently tilted at 23.5 degrees. But this changes. Other objects influence the Earth gravitationally, nudging its tilt up and down. Every 41,000 years, it cycles up and down. When the Earth is more tilted, there's more sunlight during the summer. More summer sunlight means that more of our ice melts away. With less ice on the ground, less light is reflected away, giving us a warmer climate. Earth is unusual in that its tilt doesn't change very much. Earth has a very large moon, which stabilizes its tilt. Mars has two tiny moons, and so its tilt changes much more dramatically. The next effect is the distance from the Earth to the Sun. The Earth's orbit is not a circle, it's an ellipse. Every 4th of July, we celebrate Aphelion, the day that the Earth is furthest from the Sun. Then in January, the Earth moves closest to the Sun. Now the planets Jupiter and Saturn both nudge the Earth, causing its orbit to shift slightly, becoming either more oval or more circular. This happens over a period of 100,000 years. This effect is wildly exaggerated in this diagram. It actually looks more like this. You can barely even see that the distance to the Sun is changing. But this subtle change has important consequences for our climate. Earth as a whole receives 6% more sunlight during January than it does in July. The seasons change because the North Pole sometimes tilts towards the sun and sometimes tilts away. The change in the distance to the sun, this works against the change in the seasons. This moderates the seasons in the North since the Earth is furthest away in July. But this was not always true. The Earth's axis is moving in a circle. It's spinning like a top. This is called precession. In fact, I made an entire video about this. And what this means is that 13,000 years ago, the tilt of the Earth was reversed. When the Earth was closest to the Sun, it was summer in the North. The distance change didn't oppose the seasons, it amplified seasons, making them more extreme.
Now, a warmer summer means more melting. More melting means less reflection, which means the climate as a whole is warmer. The amount of summer sunlight is affected by three long-term cycles. One changes the tilt. One makes our orbit more circular or more oval. And one changes how the distance to the sun matches with the changing of the seasons. These three cycles powerfully impact our climate. Scientists have measured the history of our climate using ice cores. Now, Earth's climate is complicated. You can't just reduce it to a single input. But the Milankovitch cycles have played a key role in our climate for hundreds of thousands of years. Chicos, acaba de entrar en erupción. No me lo puedo creer. Llama a Claudia, llama a... Mierda, grímelo todo, grímelo todo.